Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. Hello, hello. It's great to be back with you today. Here on Suicide Zen Forgiveness, as you know, we have branched out somewhat to take in a little more of mental health and your wellness and addictions and all that sort of goes along with that. Having said that, today our story comes from my guest, Patrick Chester. Uh, Patrick is a husband and father of two boys. And uh, he has a really interesting story to do with gambling addiction. In fact, he now works in that very arena, but we're going to get that from his lips. So without further ado, I'm going to bring Patrick up. Hi, Patrick. Elaine, how are you doing? Thanks for, thanks for having me on today. Really looking forward to this. Well, I'm so happy to have you here, and uh, I'm actually really looking forward to hearing your story because like a lot of the guests that we have on the outcome is very positive and that for me is what's really important i want us to be able to show people that there is light at the end of any dark tunnel and never to give up hope yeah and that's so true. You know, we, we, we can all find ourselves um, in dark places at times in life. Right. And how do we get through that? You know, and as we can get into with kind of my situation and my, my journey through, through gambling addiction, um, oftentimes for the addict and for people with mental health struggles and issues, when we go over to the dark side, it's hard to see, it's hard to see a way out of that. Right. And so, um, Fortunately for me, I was able to find the light and get through that, but many people don't. And so hopefully we can we can shed a little light on that today as we kind of talk through some of um, my story. Uh, that, that's excellent. That's, that's really where I want to go. And um, with that in mind, my first question to you is, as a child, were you likely to basically gamble on what you did or whether you'd win or whether you you and your friends could do something before somebody else was it was it always a part of your makeup or was it something that came later well that's an interesting question it's a really good question for me um i grew up in and around sports i played sports my whole life and so i always had that um I always had that competitive yeah. fire in me, you know, and so with my friends as a child, sure, it was it was always about winning or um, being faster than the, the guy next to me or or scoring more points in a basketball game. So it was always about competition. OK. Um, and that I think, you know, as we 
get further down the road here in a, in a minute or two, I think um, played a part in my what became a, a raging gambling addiction as I got into my 20s and 30s. Yeah, and, and that's why I wanted to bring it out because I found in research and, and other things that I've done over the years, uh, people that are super competitive, people that are into sports, and I was as well, or are uh, very academic, tend to go one of two ways. They will either fall into a path of gambling, whether whether it gets beyond them is another thing, or they will stay so far away from gambling. It's like there's a, a wall up. So when, when did you place your first bet, actual bet? Yeah, that's, um, you know, my first real bet was um, when I was about 19 years old you know i was working up in alaska at the time with some friends and we started playing cards you know we were playing poker and, and, and that sort of thing and i was 19 20 years old and the bets were small you know um i didn't have a lot of money when i was 19 and 20 years old so you know i may have had 20 bucks to sit down at a card table with a bunch of friends right and so we would do that fairly regularly you know and i didn't see a problem the time but you know if we go back just a little bit you know growing up as a child around my father my father was a um he was a gambler and a drinker and so i was introduced to gambling at a very young age okay. and never in fact my father encouraged it i think he handed me five or ten bucks when i was eight or nine years old and you know put me in front of his friend's slot machine his friend had a slot machine in his in his his house you know and so I didn't have any sort of concept or perspective when it came to gambling. It was, it was just portrayed as something that was fun and harmless. And so, you know, as I started playing cards in my you know, late teens, early, early twenties, I had no idea of what gambling could do and that it was actually uh, could become an addiction like drugs or alcohol. I just didn't know. Wow. That's, that's incredible to think that, you were um, sort of introduced to a slot machine as a child. Um, I, I'm I'm a Brit, and in Scotland, uh, bookies were as plentiful as chip shops and bars. And uh, even my dad would run to the bookie for his grandmother. It was it was the done thing. I mean, that's, that's what you did. You bet on the horses or you bet on whatever. So it's, it's interesting to know that it was part of, for me, working class culture. Yes, for sure. You know, in, in, in many respects, it's, it's gambling, at least in the U S is, is, is considered respectable you know, and a lot of people um, don't view it as anything other than, than entertainment, right? And, and, and something fun you could do is with a family and we're introducing our kids to it at very young ages. Mm -hmm. And so um, as we can kind of get into in my 20s and 30s, um, I would kind of crossed over to the dark side, which we can touch on. But yeah, it's, it's you know, in, in, in the UK, for example, 
you know, I do a lot of work with people over in the UK and they've yeah. been betting, as you know, I mean, they've been betting on sports over there legally for a lot longer than we have in the States. And it's, Absolutely. and they're really seeing the, the, the dark side of that now with, yeah. with suicides and everything else and yeah. mental health struggles. And over here in the States, we're fairly new to this. It's just become legal to bet on sports in the last three or four years in, in many States here. And so we have no concept as a society, no idea what can happen. Mm -hmm. uh, I unfortunately do. So yeah. it's, it's a, you know, we're kind of at the tip of the iceberg. So in your early twenties, when you started gambling, would you say there were a lot of wins or there weren't enough wins? There were, you know what, that's the thing about, that's the thing about gambling is you don't lose all the time. You know, there are, you do win sometimes and those are the, that's how you can get sucked into it, you know, and for somebody that's um, susceptible or prone to addiction, you know, addiction runs in families yeah. and it ran in my family. Um, I was the first to, to have a gambling addiction. My father was a gambler, like I said, but he didn't have, he was more of a raging alcoholic than he was a gambler, but so the wind sucked me in, but then what, what, what began to happen in my twenties, late twenties was that hundred dollar bets soon became thousand dollar bets, you know, and I started taking money that um, I should have been using to pay bills and pay rent and gambling with that money, because in my mind, I was thinking, well, I'm just going to win and I'm going to double up that money and then I can pay my bills and then I'll have extra money. And so you get into this cycle. I began to get into the cycle in my late twenties where I started making really bad choices. And, and again, using money that I shouldn't have been on gambling. And you, I, you never, any gambler that tells you that they um, win more than they lose over the long haul is, is just not being honest because if you continue to gamble, you're going to eventually lose. And that's what happened. And so I, I got started to fall behind and chasing bets. I started chasing one bad bet after another. And yeah, occasionally I would win. Um, but when I did, I would just double that up until I lost, yeah. you know, and that's the cycle I got into, you know, and this would have been around, oh shoot, this would have been probably around, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, um, when all of that started to happen and with addiction, you know, it's, it's many people don't understand gambling addiction. They just view it as yeah. a choice, right? You're just looking at yeah. somebody with gambling addiction and, and they think, well, why don't you just stop? What they don't understand is the process in the brain is very similar to, to drug addiction or alcoholism and with, you know, the dopamine and how all that works in the brain. And so I didn't have a shutoff valve with my gambling. So I, I would gamble with friends and we was primarily on sporting, you know, we would bet on football games and basketball games and my friends could lose a bet and stop if i lost i had to keep going i just could there was no shut off valve for me you know what i mean so um as we kind of get into the early 2000s that's that's what was starting to happen behind the scenes right nobody really knew yeah people knew that i gambled my friends but they didn't know to the extent um to which i had gone you know and as gamblers are really creative we can hide it because you don't you don't necessarily see the physical effects on a gambling addict that you do with a, you know, with an alcoholic or drug addict. Yeah. So people may see um, weird behaviors or notice red flags, but they're not, they're just not sure what's going on with you because you don't, you don't show those signs. Well, those red flags are 
much more subtle. They are. They're much more subtle, you know, because you don't, again, you know, if you're, if you have a friend or family member, that's a, a full blown drug addict, you could see, you could see that on them. Oh, absolutely. You know, and an alcoholic, you can see that on them, but with a gambling addict, there are no outward signs. It's just weird stuff going on that, and, and, yeah. and weird stories. And we, we, we almost, we become as gambling addicts, we become professional liars to a point, you know, where we're not because we like to deceive people, but we're trying to cover up what's going on. And we're, so it's all of these behaviors and, and, and stories and lies and things that don't add up. And so um, that's kind of where I was at, you know, like I say, around kind of my late 20s, early 30s. It, it's interesting that, that you, you word it that way, stories and cover-ups, because I believe in, in the gambler's mind, you're not thinking, oh, my God, I'm lying to people. You're thinking okay, well, I just need this story for now till till I win and I can pay everything off and then everything will be fine. There's that, that constant, well, it's only until. That was my game. That was my, my MO the whole time. My, it was, it was just buy myself another day. Okay. With a story or something like that, buy myself another day because then I can hustle some money I can gamble with it and I'm going to win and then I can pay this person off and then they're happy. Right. And as, as, as this is all happening, um, it was around kind of 2004, 2005, I began to work for myself as a contractor, mm. you know? And so I, I had clients that trusted me to do big projects for them and they were handing over 20, 30, $40,000 checks to me as, as project, deposits, down payments for construction yeah. projects. And so I was, I had access to money and to a raging gambling addict, that's, that's a problem. Um, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't able to, my brain was so, so warped at that time. I, like you, you just mentioned, I just, I would convince myself that if I could just put this person off for a day or two, I can cover it. You know, I can win more money and cover it. And, you know, I, I began to create this web this circle around me of people that I owed money to clients and it becomes this game of chase. I'm chasing these bad bets and I'm also running from people and avoiding them because I owe them money. And it's, it's that started the, the kind of the, the last 10 years of my, my addiction were, were some really dark times. Now within that last 10 years, where, where does family come into this? Where does your personal life come into this? And, and I mean, what, what kind of incredible juggling act would you have to do? It was exhausting. Yeah, that's a great question because I did get married in 2006 um, to my wife. And she I entered into that marriage um, with the best intentions, right? I was... Um, I wasn't going into marriage thinking I wanted to live a life of, of, of deception and fraud and, and all of that. I, but my wife, what my wife didn't know at the time was that I was already over a hundred thousand dollars in debt and I was hiding all of that, you know, but then as, as we get married, obviously it becomes a partnership and finances and everything are, are combined. And my wife in the early years of our marriage, 2006, 2007, 2008, right in there, trusted me to handle our bills and the mortgage payments and those sorts of things. And 
she had no idea I was, I was even gambling. Okay. Let alone, um, taking clients money and gambling with it and hundred over a hundred thousand dollars in debt. So I began to, instead of pay them, taking, uh, making the mortgage payment, I was using that money to gamble with instead of paying our, our, um, you know, our bills that she trusted me to pay. I was gambling with that money. And then when I would win, um, I would throw some money in the bank account. And she would see that and kind of try and play that game. And like you said, it's a juggling act, you know, um, there were things like, well, there's no money in the bank. And then boom, I'd win a bet. I'd throw some money in the bank and oh, okay, well, things must be good again. You know? So it's this constant, constant juggling act that I was doing. And then our son was, our first son was born in 2009. Um, and that's, was an amazing um, thing in my life. But at the same time, my wife had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. And I'm li- basically, I'm living a lie. And walking through the door each night, looking my wife in the eye and, and giving her the impression that, you know, everything's fine. Um, knowing in the back of my mind that, no, everything wasn't fine. But I had this, we developed this this um, ability to convince ourselves that somehow, some way, we're going to get out of that. And that was my, that was my, um, my thing. And, and gambling in my mind had almost become my solution because... Um, as now I'm approaching when our son was born in 2009, now I'm approaching almost a half a million dollars in debt at that point with loans and money that I owed clients and all of these other things. And in my mind, the only way I could get out of that was to gamble more and more and then just hit it big, right? Just hit it big because I could convince myself that it just took that one, that one big bet. And, um, that never really happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? But that, that's how addiction becomes so insidious because what you said, the, the addiction became, in your mind, the solution. It did. Not it, the problem. Right. It start, Yeah, exactly. And it, in my mind, it was the solution to my problem. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but it, going back to what we talked about earlier, it's so hard. Like for people that look at gambling addiction from the outside, they just view it as just a, you're just making a choice. Just stop doing it. Yeah. And um, at this point, you know, 2009, 2010, um, I realized that I had a major problem. But I, I, I had passed the point of no return in my mind. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't come clean with it at that point because I was convinced if I did, I, my wife would just divorce me, and that would be the end of it. And and I would just go off into the distance and never be heard from again. But, you know, things got a little scary there, you know, after that, after my son was born, you know, 2010, 11, 12, where I had all these clients that I owed money to some, I owed two or $3,000 to some, I owed 30 or $40,000 to. And some of them were coming after me. Uh, many of them reported me to the state and then the state ultimately turned it over to the prosecutors um, and I would be charged with two counts of first degree theft in 2013 for money that was given to me by clients. Um, and they had no idea that I was gambling or all they knew was the narrative about me was that I was, uh, you know, a shady contractor. These people you hear about mm-hmm. that, you know, take people's money and hit the road. Well, that's not what I was doing at all, but that's what it looked like to them. Yeah. Right? And yeah. So they reported me and, um, I would ultimately be charged in 2013 with two counts of first degree theft, which are felonies. And 
during that period of time, I had clients that, like I said, were, were looking for me and some of them didn't want to go through the legal process. Some of them would, would rather just take care of it outside of that, if you know what I'm saying. And I had yeah. one, one client, um, threatened to send some people after me. And I, um, I just, I just, uh, ignored it. Didn't take it seriously mm. until one night. Um, on, and I'll never, I'll never forget this. I was home with my our son would have been about two, three years old at the time. I think this was around 2012. It was in the middle of winter. It was dark. It was like eight o'clock at night. My wife's at work. She works as a nurse and she was working. And my little son, my three-year-old son is behind me playing with his train set. And I'm walking towards the front door of our house at the time. And to the left of our front door is a window, right. a rectangular shaped window. And there's somebody, there's a guy standing right in the window staring at me. Oh my God. And I didn't recognize this guy. Um, but he sees me, I see him, I'm walking towards the door. There was no avoiding this. So no. he, so I, I go to the door, I open the front door thinking it's just him. I open the front door and there's two other guys there. So now there's three guys standing there. These guys are all in their probably early twenties and they weren't there too. Um, <clears throat> this wasn't a social call. <laughs> so um, they immediately asked for me by name and they had never, seen me personally before they probably had a brief description of me and they asked for me by name and i quickly deflected and said no i'm not patrick i'm his brother but if you need to get a hold of him i'm more than happy to put you in touch with him um and they bought that and they turned around and they left and what i came to find out later was one of those guys had a gun on him and i don't know that he was there to shoot me or scare me or beat the hell yeah. out of me but whatever would have happened it would have happened in front of my three-year-old son Exactly. So that's kind of where we go. That's where this went for me. I was had gone completely over to the dark side. I was now in danger. My family was in danger and came to find out later that, in fact, yeah, my client that threatened to do that, he's the one that sent those guys after me. Wow. You know, and so that's <clears throat> that's towards the end of um we're getting towards the end of my, my run as a gambler, but you can kind of see where this was, you know, oh, then, yeah. now my, you know, I'm gambling had become all consuming with me. And now I'm putting my family at risk because of the choices I'm making to feed my addiction. What was going on in your head about your son? And, and were you starting to weigh the, the possible consequences now that you saw your family in the way like before it was just you and and your issues but but now it it's kind of you've you've thrown the family into the mix did did that give you pause or did it you know mess with how you were thinking so that was a feeling unlike anything um, I'd never experienced. That it's like a like getting kicked in the in the gut, right? I mean, it's, it's it's it was a sickening feeling looking at my son after after that had happened and knowing that I, I we're all in a bad situation now because of my my problems. And so, um, but I couldn't. My 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 head was so cloudy. I could not figure out a solution to this problem at this point. I mean, I had had I, had I just come clean years prior years before that and addressed it, it would have been better, but I didn't. And so I was so deep. I couldn't figure out a way out, a figure a way out of that. My, my, my thinking became, 
well, if I just um, end my life, my wife and son will be better off without me because that's, that's where I was at then. You know, it was yeah. just, there was no turning back. Um, the only way out of it was to win more money and pay everybody off. Um, but that wasn't happening. And so my, my, my thought process was I was getting to the point where suicide had become really my only option. So, you know, yeah. What steps did you ultimately take? So what happened was that, uh, that was what, 2012 or 2013 and 2000, 14 this was um i guess if there was ever a rock bottom moment for me it actually came in 2014 when i was i had i wasn't didn't have the ability to work anymore i was no longer I, the state took my license revoked my my business license um there were all kinds of people that knew about me and my name was my my reputation was was trashed at that point so i couldn't do work anymore um i had lost too many friends i couldn't borrow money from anybody anymore Nobody knew that I had a gambling addiction, really. They just knew that nothing made sense and they didn't want to deal with me. So um, I took $9.50 for my son's piggy bank. He would have been, I think, five years old or four years old at the time. $9.50. So I took that from my son's piggy bank. And later that afternoon, I sat in my car and I stared out the window and I was crying for what seemed like hours. And I was convinced that the only I just I was going to kill myself. I just had to figure out how I was going to do it. And so that would have been November of 2014. And that was my my lowest moment there because um, I didn't want to leave this world. Um, you know, I loved my son very much, my wife, everything. You know, we had, um, I just, I felt so bad about the situation I put them in that the only way to fix it was for me to be gone. And so um, that's where I was at. But fortunately what happened was you know, two months later, my father-in-law, my wife's dad, <clears throat> received an email from a family member um, telling him that that they thought I had a gambling problem. Ah. Um, they didn't really know, but they thought, you know, because they had done some research yeah. and they thought I had a gambling problem. And so he got my wife involved. They did some research. They started making some phone calls um, to people that I knew. And they just kind of pieced it all together and figured out, okay, you do have a gambling problem. They had no idea of the scope, yeah. <laughs> magnitude. They had no idea that I had even been charged with these count, these two counts of theft, wow. um, which were, you know, um, there was a sentencing day coming up for that. Yeah. Um, that was coming up in March of 2015, but we're talking, um, this is first of February, 2015 when my father-in-law found out. And so they, put this intervention together um, and presented me with an opportunity to go off to treatment, inpatient treatment to deal with my gambling addiction. And I, I, I accepted it. And I was, I was, I was grateful. That was a relief um, because I no longer had to live this lie. It was um, it would be months and months and months of, of uncovering, untangling all of the webs and everything for my wife and her family. They, I mean, they had no idea what I had done. They just knew I had a problem. So while I was in treatment um, in February for a month in Minnesota for my gambling addiction, my wife and her, her father and her sister would um, delve into everything behind the scenes and figure out what I had done 
they would discover that I took $28,000 from my wife's retirement account without her knowledge oh. during that period of time to feed my addiction. Um, not because I enjoyed doing that. It's because I was, I was, I was consumed by it and sick in the head. And um, they would find out that I had been charged with two counts of theft and that I had a sentencing date coming up in March of that year. They would find out um, that I had taken over $100,000 of construction equipment and sold it for $20,000. These are all the things that I did to feed my addiction. And while I'm in treatment, they're, they're discovering all of this. And um, my wife had to hire three different attorneys. She had to hire a, a criminal lawyer, a divorce lawyer, and a financial lawyer because she had no idea. I had involved her name in a lot of this stuff, and she had oh. no idea about mm -hmm. any of it. All of this stuff, you know. And so basically what happened was I went off to treatment and it, that I was able to clear my head and learn about what this actually was. You know, yeah. to my mind, I entered that place. I walked into a treatment center just convinced that I was a bad person. Um, what I would find out that I was sick. Yeah. You know, and when you there, are, and I also came to the realization that there are, there are really good people that are sick with addiction Yeah. that make bad choices. Yeah. And I think once I was able to, to, to come to that realization, I was, that was good for me because I, I, it gave me hope, you know, it gave me hope that I could somehow, some way turn this around. What separated you from the addiction? That's it. Right. And that's the, and that's the hard thing. That was even hard for me. You know, it's hard for a lot of people to wrap their, their, their head around that. Um, separating the person from the addiction. Yeah. And, and once I was able to do that, I was able to believe in myself again, you know, and that's the, that's the first step. I mean, that, that was, there was so much more that, that has come since then and all the work that, um, you know, I'm eight years in recovery now. It's, it's, it's not a, there's no quick fix, right? <laughs> no, there's definitely no quick fix. You know, and when you, when you, when you, and this goes just, this is universal in life. When you, when you break that bond of trust, like I did with my wife and family, that's fragile, you know, to get that, it's really difficult to, 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 to kind of bring that back together. Oh yeah. Yeah, it really is. And how long before you yourself knew and understood the extent of your addiction? That, like the, the, the actual monetary number that, that you had, that the addiction rather had taken you to. That's a great question. One of the things, um, you know, while, while I was in treatment and this was a gambling specific treatment facility and it was intense. One of the things the professionals um, do in there is they sit down with, they sat down with me and we went over all of that. We went over all the numbers and I, I was blown away because I had no idea. I was in such a cloud. I was so foggy for the last few years of my addiction. I had no idea. Money to me was not, it was just, it was just, I mean, I, I didn't, I had lost I had no concept of the value of a dollar. It was just, it was just stuff. So, um, but we sat down and, and went over it and it was over a million dollars. I was, I was over a million dollars in debt, loans, all of it. 
and uh, we had lost our home to foreclosure. We, I mean, all of these things that um, I had to go through and sort through and it was over a million dollars. And I was, I was, I, yeah, I had no idea how I was ever going to repay that. Yeah. You know, um, it, it just, but it, it was shocking. Oh, absolutely. You know, but what would happen? So after that, I came home on March uh, 7th of 2015 from treatment. And on March 27th, so three weeks after that, I had to go in for my sentencing for these these theft charges that I was right. um, faced with that were actually, I was charged with two years prior to that. But that's that takes a while to play out, you know, that whole process. But that I would go in on March 27th for my sentencing. And I went in there with it and speaking with my attorney thinking, okay, well, you just came out of treatment. The judge may view that favorably and you don't have any prior criminal history. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll, maybe, sh- sh- you know, the judge will put you through a, put you in a program or something like that. You won't have to go to jail. That was our thinking going in. And then I walked into the courtroom and I'm looking around and, you know, they do what, what's called victim impact statements at these sentencing hearings. And what uh-huh. that is, is it's the people that you have harmed are, are there to tell their side of the story in front of the judge. Um, and I had nobody there to speak on my behalf, but I'm looking around this courtroom and I see a handful of people that were former clients of mine yeah. that had waited for this day for years. And they were, they were eager to tell their side of the story. And I don't blame them. I mean, they, they had every right to. And uh, again, they, they didn't care at that point why I did what I did. They were just pissed and they wanted to tell the world about it. And they did. And so the judge um, sent me off to jail that day for four months and um, with a suspended sentence on top of that. So I had to go to jail and then I got out. And then if I didn't screw up, I would never have to go back to jail. But part of that too was restitution. You know, yeah. I was, I was ordered to pay all of this money back. Yeah. You know? And so that was, um, as I'm walking out of jail, would have been June 13th of 2015. I had this sense of freedom about me that, um, I hadn't experienced a long time and it wasn't freedom from jail. It was freedom from addiction. Right. Yeah. I, my mind was clear. I was, I just felt great, but I was, I was, I was terrified too, because I didn't know one, if I'd ever get a, a good job again. Right. Yeah. And make the kind of money I needed to make to pay all this back. And even if I did, if I'm paying all this money back over a million dollars, how am I going to contribute? I mean, to yeah. My, yeah. I mean, how, how is this all going to work? I mean, so I just had no idea, but I, I remember telling myself somehow, some way you'll do it. And I, <laughs> I didn't know how that was going to happen, but you know, it was a, a, a great feeling walking out of there. Well, absolutely. I can imagine. And I think part of it, and it doesn't always happen. So I think it's really important that we let the audience know you were committed to paying them back. And, and making things right. And, and that is really the only way you can truly break that addiction. Yeah, that's, that's well said. You know, I, um, I just made a commitment to, um, I made a commitment one to my recovery. Yeah. And when, if I go back to my time in jail real quick, something happened. It was interesting in there. I, um, there was, there was a, a guy to the bunk 
on the bunk to the left of me. He was there for the first few months of my stay in jail and he was a heroin addict. And we would talk every night um, before lights out. And, and he leaned on me for a while on, on he, I told him my story. He told me his story. He and his wife had been living on the streets. They lost their kids. And he kept telling me all he wanted was to get into treatment and get his life back so that he can get his kids back. And in, in talking with him for two, a couple months, um, we developed a bond and then he left about a month before me from jail. And he told me on his way out how much of a difference it made in his life talking to me because I gave him hope in sharing my story and my outlook and where I wanted to go after all I had, everything I had done. Yes. He got, he gained hope from that. And I, something tr that triggers something in me. I'm like, you know what? I've spent the last 15 years of my life taking from people. Maybe I have the ability to help and give back. And, you know, that is, that's an amazing feeling to somebody that has gone over to the dark side and did the things I did to feed my addiction. And so I, walking out of jail, that's, that was, that was my, um, my, my inspiration. You know, I just, I knew somehow, some way, if I just changed my, my outlook and changed my thinking and went out of my way to make a difference in this world, something good would come from it. Oh, that's, that's excellent. It's, it's so wonderful, not just to hear it, but to see it in your face, to see it in your body language that for one, you're totally free of the addiction, but more than that, you're dedicated to helping, helping others. And sometimes we have to wallow in it to be able to understand it enough to be useful to others when we come through it. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. You know, I, I wouldn't be the person I am today if I didn't go through what I went through and there's just no way I'm, 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 I'm a much better father. I'm a much better husband. I'm a much better friend. I'm a much better person all around because of what I went through. Um, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody, but at the same no. time, what I do now is I try and give people hope if that are struggling with whether it's gambling addiction or whatever it is, mental health, you can get through it. If you just, if you just take the steps and seek help and talk to people about your issues and don't keep it in and don't isolate like I did, you know, there are resources, there are people in this world that will help you, you know? And so, but in the moment, like we talked about earlier, when you're in that, you're in those, the darkness, you don't, you, it's really hard to see that. So um, my purpose in life now is totally, it's, it's totally changed. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's traveling the country and, and meeting with, you know, young people, predominantly student athletes and that sort of thing and, and explaining to them what can happen if you lose focus and you lose control and you, and you're, and you're susceptible to addiction. And th these are the dangers out there. Okay. And, and coming from somebody that's lived it, um, I was smart. I got good grades. I had everything going for me and I lost control and this is what happened. And so to be able to, to share that experience with people and, and, and engage with them, young people and, 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 it's great when they ask questions at the end of these presentations that I do, because it shows me that I'm, I'm actually resonating with them and their, and their, 
they're in tune with what I'm trying to trying to tell them. Yeah, that that's such a good point, and it's. I believe to do the best good, you really have to have been there. Because you can't understand the bottom of the barrel till you've sat there. And there's lots of people that can help others and that do, but not with the wholehearted, full-bodied commitment that that a former addict or a former a suicidal individual or a former put whatever tag you want there but until somebody has lived it you really can't pass on the hope and and that's the one word i think that's critical because we have to understand that no one is an island and the longer you maintain you as a singular unit, the harder it will be for you to ever break out of any addiction or issue. That's yeah, that's that's it exactly. I mean, to find hope and to see a little bit of a sliver of light when you're in that dark tunnel, you know, um, and I think we're better in society now at, at recognizing it and addressing some of these things, but we're still not nearly where we need to be. But, you know, I just, I was afraid to talk to anybody. I was, I was scared. I, I, I was ashamed, all of it, you know? And so, you know, if, if we can just open up to people and talk to friends, family members, or even if it's a, you know, a stranger, like you can, there are numbers you can call and talk to professionals that can help you steer you in the right direction for help. Um, because that's such a huge thing. Uh, the word hope is, uh, that's that's the single word I clung to when I was in jail is I, I just, if I can just find hope somehow, and, and, if, and my wife gave that to me in brief conversations on the jail phone when I'm calling my wife, she would say something that gave me a little bit of hope that maybe I had a chance to get my marriage back and put the family back. To, you know, it's the small things. If we can find hope, that's that's a motivator. Yeah. You know, but when yes. you when you don't, if you can't find, if there's no hope and you can't see the light, it's it's no, that's a scary is. place to be. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, we have to give a shout out to your wife. <laughs> wow. Yeah, she she um, she's the true hero of this story for sure. She she she. I'm fortunate because it doesn't, the majority of the time, it doesn't work out that way, you know, but what she did was she, she wanted to understand what this was, what gambling addiction actually is. Um, Instead of just cutting the cord and sending me off, you know, which she had every right to do. um, She wanted to understand what this was. And she got to a point where she was able to, like you said earlier, separate the addiction from me, Yeah, you know, and that's such a huge part of this and it also speaks to how you can be effective in what you do now to help others because of her belief in you not the addiction absolutely and that's you know it's it's just that's such a huge piece to this that that people just can't um quite wrap their head around is the addiction is not the that doesn't necessarily yeah. define the, the, the who the person is. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, my wife married me because she knew she knew me as a good person, 
not knowing that she was also marrying somebody who had a full blown addiction. Yeah. But, you know, if you can separate the two and learn about addiction, learn, learn what it does to the brain. Um, that's a big part of this. Yeah. Well, my, my hat's off to her and, and I have to give a nod to your father-in-law too, to love his daughter enough to take that chance for her and, and reach out to you. That's not every in-law would do that. No. And they were, um, incredible. Her, my wife's family, her sister, her parents, yeah. they all basically took on a role. My wife's mother um, basically raised our son for a year while my wife was was trying to sort through all this. And I wasn't yeah. even, I was in jail and everything else. And my father-in-law took care of the finances and did all of that. And they, you know, um, they shelled out thousands and thousands of dollars to basically get my wife back on her feet again while I sat yeah. in jail and um, to any father in law and I have since paid most of that back and we'll have them paid back here very shortly. But any father-in-law to allow the son-in-law back into the, his house yeah. after doing that to his daughter and grandson. Um, boy, I don't know. I don't know many that would, but I, you know, they have welcomed me back into their, their family and um, have been great during this whole, this whole time. I mean, they were, they were not happy uh, to say the least, but no. um, And it's taken time to rebuild that trust. Yeah. But we're in a good place and, and, and there's, there's a lot of, um, we are a a family now again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I think what's really great is every time you speak, every time you go out to help young student athletes, you're giving back to them in a different way for, for everyone you reach out to. That's another uh, little splash in that cup of hope that you are now passing around, which, which I just think is incredible. Yeah. And it's like you said earlier, it's different, you know, to, to, to get in front of a, a, a group of a hundred or 200 or 300 student athletes and, and tell a story without lecturing, right. I'm not there to tell them what they should or shouldn't do, but I'm telling them from somebody that's gone through it and lived it. And that's different than, than standing up as just a, a like a medical professional yeah, and, and, and telling them about the research and the statistics and, you know, which are, all relevant, but at the same time, it's, it's, it resonates more with them yeah. to hear it from somebody that's like you said, that's gone through it, you know? Oh, oh absolutely. You know, it, it's it, a little off topic, but I firmly believe that a medical professional or, or a police person or anyone who has to deal with humanity at their very lowest needs to have spent time in those trenches in order to understand just how dark and horrid it can be there. Because you cannot bring empathy if you've never understood any of it. No, that's for sure. And it's just, um, life is (laughs) really, it's all about experiences, right? And what we go through and what we learn from that. You know, and 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 how we carry that forward, and what we do with our our 
the knowledge that we've gained through these these experiences and um yeah i mean i can i can't tell you it's it's um i've learned a lot you know as we all do through everything that we go through in life you know um we're all constantly learning and growing but not everybody takes the lesson that's the difference you were given these lessons you were brought to your knees but you chose to reach up for hope you made that choice I did, you know, and I and I and I learned early on in treatment that 80% of gambling addicts eventually go back to it, right? So I was already fighting an uphill battle with, you know, just sheer numbers. You know, we, we don't, most of us don't, don't get to this point. But I, yeah. and I didn't know that I was going to get to this point at all. I just, I just knew that where I came, I didn't want to go back to where I came from, and so I was just going to keep pushing forward, and whatever happened, happened. But um, yeah, it's it's um, again. You mentioned it's hope. If you if you can if you find hope, you know the, the guy next to me in jail was able to find some hope in our conversations. I was able to find hope um, talking with my wife from a jail phone for a couple minutes a night. That that carried the day for me. I found hope, and there was no nothing was going to to shake me. It's such an incredibly uplifting story. I, I am I am sorry for all, all the trials that you went through and, and that your family went through. And you now have two children. So now we do we have a we have a second son who's five years old now who wouldn't um who wouldn't even be on this earth if not for my recovery. Okay. Um so that's that's the whole other side of this, you know, um, and I don't take that for granted, not for one second of, of, of one day. I, I look at him and, and I just, I feel blessed, you know, blessed that we're able to have him in our life. And my oldest son has a brother, a younger brother now that he's able to, to, um, play with and, and, and goof around with. And it's just, it's the greatest thing, you know? So, um, very fortunate that my wife stuck with me, you know, very yeah. fortunate that I had family that looked after me and, and, and gave me an opportunity to turn my life around because a lot of people don't have that. Um, they don't get that opportunity. And some of us, all we need is an opportunity to turn things around yes. and the hope. And I, I was able to, I, I found that and I, and I, and I <laughs> held on tight to it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we're very glad that you did, Patrick. Absolutely. So if you can leave our audience with one, one tip or one, I hate the word hack, but one life hack or tweak that you use on a regular basis that you think might be useful for the audience, what would that be? If, if there's any takeaway from this for, for the, the main thing is to reach out for help, what, whether, whatever it is, if it, you're struggling with, with mental health, your suicidal thoughts, addiction, um, a lot of these things are, are kind of intertwined, but depression, the worst thing you can do is to keep that to yourself and isolate. The best thing you can do for your, for your 
your own well-being is to talk to somebody about it, whether that's a therapist, a friend. And that's what I tell people. Um, if you think you're struggling, you are, and you're going to need some help. And don't be ashamed. Um, don't live in um, the darkness. Don't don't isolate. Be upfront. Talk to some people about it. And if you're afraid, to, again, if you're afraid to talk to or, or embarrassed to talk to somebody that's close to you, call somebody. Call the the suicide prevention line. Um, Gamblers Anonymous, um, NAAA. There are a lot of different organizations and groups that you can reach out to. Go to a meeting um, because one of the things I found early on was that I thought I was the only one doing doing yeah. this and acting this way. Yes. And when I when I was able to to surround myself with people like me, um, that was huge because it, it it made me. I came to the realization that okay, I'm not alone. There are other people that are struggling with this, and if you can get around people like that, they can understand you. So that's the main thing I want to I want to get across is don't be afraid to reach out to, to people for help if you think you need it. Yeah, don't struggle alone. Absolutely. That is the best bit of information, the best bit of advice anybody could give anybody. And I love what you said there. If you if you are struggling, if you believe you're struggling, you are. And so reach out. And even if you reach out and it doesn't go too far, at least you've reached out. You've, you've gone to touch another human being. You've spoken to another human being because you're absolutely right. That darkness, that, 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 that lockdown of self is, I think, the worst thing we can do for not just ourselves, but for other people. Because until you know that others are walking the same walk as you, then we won't ever be able to fix anything. And we won't look outside ourselves where maybe we could be helping another. Yeah, that's it. The worst thing we can do is isolate. Isolation is, is not, it's not constructive. It's not getting, it's not helping. No. Um, you know, and it's, we all need to get past the shame that comes with yes. all of this with yes. mental health and, and addiction. Um, don't be ashamed of where you're at. Just um, be open and talk to somebody because there are compassionate, caring people in this world that will, <clears throat> that will help you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Patrick, I thank you so much for coming on and being our guest and being so raw and real, which to me is, absolutely the best thing anybody can be. I'm Elaine Lindsay. This is Suicide Zen Forgiveness. And until I see you next time, make the very best of your today, every day. And I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results. And also by Canada's keynote humorist, Judy Kroon, motivational speaker, comedian, author, and stand-up coach at Second City.